0: I almost ruined my voice on Behold Our God, <coughs> so bear with me as I try to get it back. I think I pull something or pop something or something there anyway. It's kind of, uh, you get into that sometimes and that's what happens, right? there's a great song, great thought, Behold Our God, seated on His throne above all nations, above all peoples, ruling and reigning forever and ever and ever. What a glorious thought. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, beginning verse 1. I'm actually going to read through verse 5, but I'm only going to deal with verses 1 through 3. So uh, we will spend some time in John 9 as we did in John 8 and looking at uh, these particular episodes in the life of Christ. One thing I want you to see and to realize is that we are coming in this chapter. We won't get to it in its finality today. But in this chapter, one of the things, the thing we have is the, another sign, another miracle, another sign of his messiahship, and that's the healing of the blind man. And we'll talk more about that significance of that next week than we will this week, but I, I want you to understand that this is the sixth out of seven signs that John chooses to show the Messiahship of Christ. It's, it's number six out of seven specific miracles. And I'm sure if I were to ask you right now, you could stand because we've been through this and recite what those six, the, the five previous to this are. I won't ask you to do that, but I'm sure you could. But, but we remember the first sign was way back there in John chapter 2. For Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry came to the wedding at Cana and his mother came to him and said, they're out of wine. And, and Jesus took the water pots that were used for ceremonial washing, for ceremonial legalistic washing in the old covenant. And he took those water pots filled to the brim and he turned that water into wine. Not just any wine, but the best wine they had ever tasted. Matter of fact, the, the guests said, you know, usually the the host will serve the best wine first, and then when everybody gets a little happy in the party of the wedding, then, then he'll bring out the, the poor wine. But this, this host has done it just the opposite. Little did that person know that it was not the host that was providing that, but something that was being provided for the host that the host could not do for himself. He was out of wine. And the Lord took that water and said, here's new wine, showing that the, new was, the old was giving way to the new, that the law was giving way to the truth of the gospel and God's grace. We saw that in that. The second miracle, of course, the healing of the, of the nobleman's son or the, the, the public official's son who, who came and chafed after Jesus and said, my son is ill, my son is sick, please come to him. Uh, the nobleman could do nothing for his son, had, had no way of helping his son. And Jesus said, go your way, your son has been healed. And in the invalid at Bethesda by the pool there, who had been an invalid for 30 some odd years. And, and Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Couldn't, he couldn't walk prior to that. He had no way of doing that himself. He could not walk. He had no ability to walk. And yet Jesus said, now you stand up and walk. And he did. You know, in chapter 6, we had the feeding of the 5,000. People were hungry. The People had come to hear Jesus, and nobody came prepared for the length of the sermon. In preparation, they, they, they didn't make for that, and I'm not going to keep you here that long today because I don't have the ability to do that, but you didn't come prepared for a real long sermon, I don't imagine. Uh, you didn't bring any food. You didn't bring any nourishment. You had you expect to go home at the normal time and, and you'll have food there to eat or you'll go somewhere and find some food. But these people came and Jesus began to teach them and preach to them and teach them the truth. And they had no way of feeding themselves, so he fed them. The miracle of the 5,000. Then we have Jesus walking on the water in chapter 6, later part of chapter 6, out to the disciples. When they had pushed off and didn't know where Jesus was, and they were looking for him, and they were worried on the sea, and it was a storm, and and all of those things taking place, and Jesus came to them and protected them. Today we'll have the healing, or, or next week we'll have the healing of the man born blind. We'll start that this week. Born blind, not just became blind, but born blind. He was blind from birth, and Jesus heals him. And then in a few weeks, or a month or two, we'll get to chapter 11. And we'll see Lazarus, that final miracle. There, there's something unique about each of those that you need to understand, though. Each of these, each of these miracles have a uniqueness about them. But they all have a, a common thread that runs through them. You have Jesus doing for those who cannot do for themselves. You know, you, you hear people all the time say, and we've talked about this before, you have people saying, oh, well, you know what the Bible says. God helps those who helps themselves. Bible never says that. Ben Franklin might have said it. I can't remember who it was that actually said that, but the Bible doesn't say it. the, The emphasis of these signs and the emphasis of the whole Scripture is that God helps those who have no hope of helping themselves. God helps those who are absolutely Helpless. And whether it's changing water into wine because there was no wine or healing the official son or the the invalid at Bethesda or feeding the 5,000 or or the man born blind or, or Lazarus in his tomb, no matter where you look at it, these signs are to point to something that's very important and very specific. And that is God is doing miracles to help those who can't help themselves. It's important to see. Remember, when you come to these seven signs in John's gospel, there are really about four questions you ought to always ask. You really ought to ask this about just about any, uh, any place in Scripture that's talking about the truth of, of Christ's coming and, and pointing to his, his deity and His Lordship. There, there are several questions you ought to ask. First question you ought to ask about each of these stories is, what does this story say about the people? What does it say about the people that are around? Well, I've already said in each of these, it's, it's telling that the people could not do anything to help themselves. They were... Uh, totally helpless second question you ought to ask is what does the story say about jesus well in each of the signs they're focused on jesus doing a miracle doing something that was not natural doing something that doesn't just happen in the natural form of life he's performing something for them that is out of the ordinary showing that he is the king he is the messiah he is indeed god in the flesh third question you ought to ask is, what does this story say about you? Put yourself in that story. Put yourself in that situation that these people find themselves in. What is this story saying about you and your needs and, and what you can or cannot do for yourself? What does the story say about you? And then finally, who needs to hear this story? Well, we, we need to understand that there is a there's an evangelistic thrust to every one of these stories. There's an evangelistic message embedded in each of them whereby Jesus is calling to the people to come and follow him. Jesus is calling the people to believe that I am who I say that I am. And so even in our own day, it's not just the church that needs to hear the story about the water to wine or the invalid at Bethesda or the feeding of the 5,000, but it's all men everywhere need to hear this so that they might understand who God is, who Christ is, and what he does for those who can't do for themselves. Do you agree with that? There's a message that needs to be heard and needs to be said. Well, all that by way of introduction. Hear the word of the Lord out of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. As he passed by, now he's leaving the tabernacle, he's leaving the temple, after the Feast of Tabernacles. The people have wanted to pick up stones and kill him right there, and and he leaves that place. He went out of the temple. Don't you know that most of us, if we'd gone out of the temple in that circumstance, people right behind us wanted to kill us, we would have run and hid somewhere. We would not have been observant of those around us. I have a feeling. But Jesus was. He goes out of the temple. He starts out of the temple. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him a question, a philosophical question, a theological question that was very important in that day. And they said to him, Rabbi or teacher or or Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? They looked at him. They said, this this man is born blind? Who was it that sinned? Did he commit sin before his birth in the womb? Or was it his parents that sinned? And his parents that brought this horrible thing upon him by his sin? And Jesus answered, It was neither that his, this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work, no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I want you to see several things in this man born blind. I, 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 it's fascinating. It's not someone who had an accident and was blind, but it was one who was born blind. I, I remember talking, I'll use him today because he's out of town, but I remember talking to Mark Huffman one time, uh, who's an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor, eye surgeon. I remember talking to Mark and, and, and he began to say, well, you know, had I entered medical school or, or ophthalmology school, had I entered that an atheist, I would have come out a believer. I said, what do you mean? He said, the human eye is the most remarkable evidence of the power of a planning, creating, working God that you'll ever see. Said there is no way under the sun that everything that has to take place for the eye to work and to work right could have just happened through an evolutionary process, whether it be millions or billions or whatever's beyond that years of evolution. See, there's no way. So the eye is intricate. Everything has to work together in a perfect way. All these nerves, all these things running through there. And and I'm beginning to to appreciate a little more since I had the eye problem a few years ago coming back from Peru, and I still struggle with that branch vein occlusion of the retina in my right eye. And and sometimes when I go a little long before getting a treatment for it, I I start getting hazy and things get across my eye, and I, I just really appreciate the eye is an amazing thing. But for a man to have been born blind means a lot went wrong in the process of that taking place. And and quite honestly, if a person goes blind, sometimes there's medical treatment that can be done for them. They can can receive a cornea transplant or they can receive uh, some kind of of treatment on the eye and, and they can see again, at least partially. But for a man born blind, there is no hope humanly speaking. There is no doctor that could heal this man. There is no medicine that could make him better. Indeed, there's nothing he could do for himself. He could will all day that, I want to see, I want to see, but it just didn't work and he couldn't see. So Jesus chooses this man with this malady, with with this problem to show his power, to show his grace, to show his mercy, in a most remarkable way that we'll get to next week but but the question the disciples had is a legitimate question matter of fact it's a question that's still asked today why does pain and suffering come upon people why do they, why do some people it would seem some more than others even why do they have such calamity in their life Why is there such a struggle in their life? Whether it's physical pain and physical illness or whether it's circumstantial things or or whatever that's taking place. Why is it that in so many people's lives there is suffering and pain? Is it some sin that they have done? Did they do something so horrible and so terrible that God said, I'm going to get you for that. I'm going to fix you for that, and, and brings this calamity upon them because of sin that, that they have done? Or, or as the disciples said, or, or was it his parents? Were his parents such evil people that, that God just said, you know, I'm going to show you how bad you are by bringing your son into the world without any eyesight? You've heard people look at other people today and say, I wonder what they did that brought that upon them. Well, I want to tell you this this morning. I want you to understand something clearly. All suffering and all sickness and all pain and all misery is a result of sin. But not necessarily a specific sin in your life. Not necessarily a specific sin that was committed where there's a one on one corollary where God says, okay, because of that sin, I'm going to sin this. But I want you to understand all suffering, all sickness, all pain is a result of sin. Had Adam and Eve, our federal heads, our mother and father to all of us, our first parents, had they not disobeyed God and fallen in the garden, we wouldn't have that problem today. Now, I guess it'd be easy to say, well, it's not my fault then. It's Adam's fault. It's Eve's fault. It's their fault. I'm suffering because somebody else did this. Well, I want you to know that you may have inherited their sin, but you entered into it willingly also. And so we have this situation where there's pain and there's suffering and there's struggle, and, and there's no other way to see it except as a result of and a problem with, sin but i want you to understand a couple of things about this particular man i want you to see this before we even talk about the idea of suffering i want you to see what this man symbolizes i want you to see what this man teaches us about all mankind because he really does the first thing i want you to see here is that this man symbolizes the state of all lost men and women apart from the creative and transforming grace of God and power of Jesus Christ. He is, he is symbolic of the human race. We are blind in our sin. We are blind and helpless just like he was. There's nothing we can do to bring sight. There's nothing we can do to bring a spiritual understanding. It's amazing that all around this blind man, this man born uh, blind, uh, blind from birth, they're, they're Pharisees and they're religious leaders, and all of them have perfect physical eyesight as far as we know, but they were just as blind spiritually as this blind man was. They could not see. They could not see who that was standing before them. They would not see because of their blindness that this was God incarnate. This was God come in the flesh. But I want you to see that in this blind man, he gives him not only physical sight, but as we'll see as it moves through his story, he also gives him spiritual sight to worship and praise and adore Christ. But this blind man, at the start of this story, I want you to see that he represents and symbolizes the state of all lost humanity. The second thing I want you to see is because this man was blind from birth, born blind and unable to see, he couldn't seek out Jesus. You know, He didn't know where to go. He didn't know where this man was. He was just sitting there begging and and asking for some help because of his condition. He didn't he couldn't decide I think I'm gonna find I'm gonna go seek Jesus out. I'm gonna see if I can find Jesus. Maybe Jesus can help me. I don't, I've heard miracle stories, but he was blind. The blind can't seek. The blind are helpless as far as getting about. They have to have somebody to help them along, help them about, show them where they're going. A blind man can't seek anything. Third thing I want you to see is. If if the blind man was unable to seek Jesus, it's equally true and important to understand that he was unable to find him. He couldn't seek him, he couldn't find him. But Jesus found him. Jesus was walking out of the temple on his way to leave those who were wanting to stone him and wanting to put him to death. And there it is. He says, he just simply says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And he was moved by it. And he was moved to it. The evidence is here that the disciples weren't so moved. I have a feeling the disciples were a lot like you and me. They weren't concerned about the man's blindness as, as much as they were a philosophical argument. But I've got a feeling if, if Jesus had not been with them, they would have rushed right on by because they heard the, the people behind them walking the footsteps that were coming to hopefully put Jesus to death. And, and they pretty well figured that if it's going to happen to him, it's, it's for us too. But Jesus had compassion. Jesus saw this man born blind, blind from birth, and he, he drew near to him. You know, have you ever noticed that all of these miracles, all of these signs, including this one, all that John chooses to show us illustrate the great truth that shows us the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy of Christ, the care of Christ for those who have needs, and who are hurting, and who are struggling. That's exactly what John wants us to see in every one of these miracles. But the disciples draw the attention not to the blind man because of his need, but to this question, why is he blind? Who sinned? Was it him, or was it his parents? And Jesus said, I want you to understand something. It wasn't his parents. It wasn't him. While it's an overarching understanding that all suffering and all blindness and everything is is caused because of sin being in the world, there's no specific direct sin that you can tie this to, Jesus says. But Jesus says, This man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind. This man is suffering and has suffered for many years, evidently, for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is so that the power of God, the work of God, the might of God might be displayed in Him. There are numerous kinds of suffering that you find in the Scripture. There's one type of suffering that might be considered to be a corrective suffering. There is corrective suffering. The Bible of Hebrews says, those whom God loves, he chastens. It's not a punishment, but it's a discipline. It's a chastening. Those whom God loves, those who belong to him, there will come a time if you stray from the path, if you move away from the direction God is, is pressing you to go, much like Jonah, there will be suffering that will be corrective in nature. You do remember Jonah, don't you? You do remember the story that God came to Jonah and said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go and preach the truth there. I want you to go and proclaim my power there and my grace and my goodness. And Jonah said, I want no part of that. I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't like those people, and they won't like me. And so Jonah says, okay, Nineveh's that way. Then I'm going to go that way. And he took off not just off the path. He took off in 180-degree opposite direction. And he ran from God and said, God, I don't want any part of what you've called me to do. He gets on a boat, heads off to Joppa. As he's traveling there and and, and things start happening, a storm comes up, the waves start shifting, a little bit of fear, a little bit of probably seasickness on that boat. And and the the sailors say, well, what's, what's causing this? Why are the gods, they didn't acknowledge Yahweh, why are the gods doing this to us? And they started casting lots. Who is Who's causing this? Who's who's the one that's the problem? They started, I guess we would make uh, an analogy to it. They started shooting dice to see whose problem it was. Jonah finally said, It's me. And they said, Okay. Off the boat he went, threw him into the sea. A fish came along, a great fish. By the way, it wasn't a whale. If you want to write Bill O'Reilly and tell him it wasn't a whale, It it was a fish that came along, a great fish, a huge fish. I don't know if it's a normal fish or one that God prepared specifically for this particular moment, but that's fine. The fish came along, swallowed up Jonah, and let me tell you something. I don't know about you, but to me, that would be suffering. Three days in the belly of a fish with other food and other acids and things that are, that are digestive in nature and seaweed, and just imagine it. It was suffering. Until finally, Jonah came to repentance and confessed his sin before God, and God threw him, had the, had the fish throw him up on the land, literally regurgitate him up on the land, which probably wasn't a very pleasant thing either. Suffering continued. But that situation in Jonah's life was corrective. God said, I, I've got, I, want, to, I want to bring you back within what I have called you to do spankings are kind of like that, aren't they? I know y'all are modern parents. You don't spank your children anymore. My dad was not so modern, and I knew that when there was error, and I diverged from the path that my dad thought I should be walking down, I could, I could very well understand there would be some corrective suffering on my part, and it usually worked. But you see that in Scripture? God uses suffering to bring correction when we stray from his path as believers. Listen, this this flies in the face of of all the, oh, God just wants you healthy and happy and, and everything else. Flies in the face of that. God will use suffering and pain and whatever to correct you if necessary. just want you to know that. It's another type of suffering in Scripture that you see that are constructive sufferings. That they are brought into your life so that it can he can kind of sh- chip away at, at some of the things that are standing in the way of, of you being molded in the image of Christ. Some of the things that need to be stripped away so that you can look more like Christ, so that you can grow and mature, so that your life can be more pleasing to God in, in a sense of being like Christ. In others, there's some whittling away. I remember reading the story years ago about some famous sculptor, I don't know who it was, but the, the, the sculptor was asked, he had this big piece of marble or granite or whatever in front of him, said, how do you, how do you make such a beautiful statue out of just such a block of stone? And his answer was, I, I look at that and I take my hammer and my chisel and I just chisel away everything that doesn't look like what I want to be there. And God uses suffering and God uses pain in our lives sometimes as a hammer and as a chisel to just kind of chisel away some of the rough edges that, that aren't supposed to be there and they're in the way of our being more created in the image of Christ, becoming in the image of Christ. It's amazing. He's The great sculptor working in our life, chipping away. But thirdly, and, and really finally, there's what Jesus talks about here. There is, there is corrective suffering. There is constructive suffering. But here he says, this suffering this man went through was for one specific purpose. There's, there's no incidence here necessarily that there was any correction or any, any uh, construction taking place, at least not yet. But he says, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There is a, there's, there's a certain type of suffering that is sent and given merely and solely and only that the grace of God might be revealed in the life of the believer. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Pursuit of God, made the statement, he said, It's doubtful whether God can ever bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Think about that a moment. Now, I'm I'm telling you that. I don't like it. But I think there's a lot of truth in it. Until Until we have suffered somewhat, for whatever reason, God is not able to bless or use us greatly until we have suffered and been hurt deeply in our own own self. It it tears away the pride. It, It strips away us, and it lets God's grace and God's glory and God's power be seen through us. Think of that in the Old Testament. Think about characters like Job. According to the Scripture itself, the inspired Word of God, Job did nothing to bring that on himself, and yet he suffered horrendously. I won't take time to account all that he lost, but just suffice to say, he lost everything. Why did he lose everything? Simply because Satan said, God, that man right there is serving you because you've given him so much. You've blessed him so much. Why, if you took that away, he would curse you immediately. And God gave Satan permission to test him. I I love that scene. I want you to understand that. Satan could not have touched him without God's permission. That's important, folks. Satan could not have could not have put anything on him that God didn't say is for Job's good. I, I always go back to Romans eight twenty eight. For we know that God uh, we, we know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. And, and so you look and you say, Job, you lose everything. How can that be a blessing? Well, God restored times over what Job lost. But what that did was it it showed suffering so that God's grace and God's glory and God's power could be seen. Or what about Joseph? One of my favorite characters in all the Bible. And by the way, the, one of the one of the things that I was... So sad they had to leave out, or they did leave out of the, the Bible. It's the story of Joseph. Here's Joseph. He's just trying to serve his brothers. He's just trying to be a good son. His dad loves him, gives him a coat of many colors, and that's kind of a coat of authority, and, and it, it, it upset the brothers some. But, but here's Joseph, just, just trying to serve his brothers, taking food out to them, caring about them, wanting to minister to them. And they hated him so they took him and they threw him in a pit going to kill him and, and decided in the final analysis, no, because the older brother's wisdom said, let's don't kill him, let's just take his coat, put some goats and sheep's blood on it, say he was killed, but let's sell him into slavery. And they did that. and You know the story of Joseph, he went down to Potiphar, it was finally sold to Potiphar's house, it was so good at what he was doing, he rose to the top of Potiphar's house and there he was living the good life, no doubt, albeit a slave, but Uh, the top slave in Potiphar's house, says he he had rule over everything in Potiphar's house except one thing, that was Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife wanted him in an immoral way. And she day after day tried to seduce him. And Joseph kept saying, how can I do such a great sin against God and yet, I'm sure she said, but your dad and them are back in, in their country. They'll never know. The, the, the preacher will never know. Nobody will ever know. It's just me and you, Joseph. And he said, I can't do this and sin against God. So as he started to leave, she grabbed his coat, screamed out so the other servants would hear, and accused him of attempted rape right there in his own house, in Potiphar's own house. Joseph was thrown in prison lived there for several years. Uh, And and finally one day the cupbearer and the baker are thrown in there and they have dreams and Joseph says, looks at them when they first get there and says, why are your faces so sad? It gives some indication that even in the prison, Joseph knew that God was in control and God was working all things for his good. Didn't look real good right now. He's suffering in in, in Pharaoh's prison, but he he looks at them and says, why are your faces so sad today? They must have thought he was crazy. Joseph, you know, newsflash here, you're where we are. That's why we're sad. Why aren't you sad? Have you lost your mind down here? They had their dreams. He interpreted them. One would die. One would be put back in authority. And when when the cupbearer was leaving to go back to Pharaoh, Joseph said, remember me when you get back. And he didn't. He forgot him. And went on, languishing there for two more years in that prison, in that dungeon. And then finally one day, Pharaoh had some dreams. The cupbearer, you know, I hate to bring this up, Pharaoh, but, but a few years ago when you got a little upset with me and threw me in the dungeon, remember that? I hate to bring it up, but you remember that? There was this Hebrew boy down there who interpreted the dream that I had, and interpreted the baker's dream, said to the baker you'd kill him, said you'd restore me to my place of honor, and you did this Hebrew boy has some kind of insight. I don't have time to tell the rest of the story. He's brought out, interprets Pharaoh's dreams, put over all the country, made second in command, prime minister, if you will, of all of Egypt to take care of overseeing the the years of plenty and then the years of famine. And finally the day comes, there's a famine in in, in Israel, and, and his brothers come down to where he is to try and get some grain through all sorts of gymnastics and get all to the point. But they finally get to the end where Joseph one day pulls off his, his, his Egyptian garb and, and there they see their younger baby brother standing there who suffered as a slave, who suffered false accusations, who has suffered the horrors of Pharaoh's most horrible prison, on and on. And now he's standing there, and here are the boys who put him there. What would you have done? Well, I, I hate to think what I would have wanted to do, and maybe Joseph wanted to do it, but he, was, he would, had so been, been shaped by God's hand in his life that when he saw them, this is what he said, As for you, as they were trembling... As they were quaking at the presence of their brother, who now had all authority over them, all those dreams came true. As for you, you meant evil against me. And they did. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Wow. You meant it for evil. I suffered greatly because because of your sin, unjustly, unrighteously, undeservedly. But God had a plan. And God was shaping me through all of those suffering experiences. God was molding and God was shaping, and God was making me for one thing, and that was that His glory might be seen. And it was. You can go on to Paul that that Ricky read. There's a case where in in Job's case, and in Joseph's case, they they both kind of came out on the other end of it. But in in, in Paul's case, he had this thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what that was. There's all sorts of speculation. Uh, you can read all sorts of, of things in different commentaries and books on what it was. Some believe it was a uh, some believe it was just a a problem of of, uh, of lust or problem within him that he couldn't overcome. Some believe it was a problem of, uh, of pride. Some believe it was a an Oriental eye disease. It, it, any number of things that that people will speculate on what that was. Now, I tend to kind of lean toward the eye disease, but I don't have time to tell you why now. But anyway, Paul said he prayed three times. He prayed perfectly. He prayed over and over again. He prayed, Lord, please take this away. I don't like this. It's not comfortable. It's, it, it, it's hurtful. It's painful. It's, it, it's aggravating. I, I, Lord, please take this thorn in my flesh away. And God's answer was, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, matter of fact, I'm, I've got it there for a reason. Uh, God said to me, Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. you realize when things are going great, when there is no suffering, when there is no struggle, and I'm talking about my life now, when things are just going almost perfectly, humanly speaking, I have a tendency to say, wow, look what I'm doing. I must be doing everything right. It's all about me. It's all about what I can do. It's all about how much God must really like me because look what I'm doing. But when difficult times come, and they do come, I mean, we can go in the past and talk about really difficult times, but we have difficult times now, struggles now. And when those struggles come, I realize I'm not as strong as I think I am when things are going my way. When those difficult times come, when those struggles come, when those thorns in the flesh come, if you will, I recognize that I'm really not as strong as Bill Haynes likes to make other people think that he is. And in my weakness, in my struggle, is the opportunity for Christ power and Christ glory to be manifested all the more. Same thing in your life. You may say, oh, I, I don't know why this is happening. It may be happening to correct you. It may be happening because you've kind of wandered from the path and, and, and God is trying to say, look, you're depending on yourself. You're not depending on me. You're trusting in you, not trusting in me. like Jonah. You're not obeying. You're not following. If you're a believer, Christ has borne all the penalty of your sin, but but He's wanting to correct you back to where you need to be. It might be that it's just constructive. God is wanting you to see the power of of His presence in your life, and so this bit of suffering is a chisel and a hammer to kind of shape you like He wants you to be. But all in all, the real reason, the most glorious reason, the most important reason is that His grace might be seen and might be revealed in your life so that people around you who know what you're going through and know you're suffering can see, I'm not depending on trying to figure this out myself. I'm depending on Christ who is my strength. Paul said, in Christ I can do all things. Paul said to the Galatian Christians, I will boast not in my own power, not in my own strength, not in what I can do. I will boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Suffering, difficult times, however you want to call them, whatever you want to call them, should always be purposeful. John Piper wrote a little book, Don't Waste Your Life. Then he got cancer, prostate cancer, and he wrote a little, he wrote a sermon. I think he made a booklet, it wasn't a full book, but he wrote a, he did a sermon and put it in booklet form, Don't Waste Your Cancer. You just did one not long ago. Don't waste your retirement. You can put on anything. Don't waste the opportunities that God is giving us to show forth His grace, His power, and His glory. Don't waste whatever circumstances God allows to come into your life be they bad or good but we're thinking specifically of tough times here don't waste those as a chance to show the world and show your family and show your neighbors that your dependency is not on what you can accomplish but your dependency is on Christ and in Christ I can do I can endure I can walk through all things doesn't matter because it's him that's in control Not me. It's him that is to be glorified. Not me. So that Jesus and his disciples are walking along, passing by, and they see this man. Jesus says, I want you to know this man has been blind for all these years. That the works of God might be displayed in him. what's going on in your life right now that God and you, I know what our first thing is. Boy, Satan's really doing a number on me. Maybe not. Or oh, maybe Satan who's being the messenger might be Satan who's able to do it. But, but don't, don't forget Job that Satan can only operate in your life if you're a believer, particularly if you're in Christ. He can only operate against you in your life by God's permission, and then we know that we're in Christ and we're protected even through it, but the test can still be very difficult. But well, what's God allowing in your life right now for one purpose and one purpose only, that you might demonstrate His grace and His glory and His power so that people can look at your life or my life and not say, wow, you sure are strong Wow, you sure are smart. Wow, you sure are good. But they'll look at your life and your circumstance and where you are and say, Wow, what a mighty God you serve. What a glorious Savior you have. What a phenomenal, even awesome Lord, you serve. Do you get the picture? I think Tozer was right. I think Tozer was right. It's doubtful whether God can bless a man until uh, until he has hurt him deeply. It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I know, I know our gentle Jesus of today would never hurt anybody. Our gentle Jesus of today just wants you to be happy and wealthy and healthy and never have a struggle at all. There's only one problem with that. That may be the Jesus of 20th century America. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. Oh, He loves you. And He cares for you. And and He brings you through those trials and those storms and those sufferings. He's there with you, protecting you all the way. But He never exempts you from it. And that's a good thing. Because if he didn't let those come into our life, we never, we never would give him the glory. but always take it for ourselves. That's the problem of sin. So what's in your life right now that God is wanting to use to show his glory? Let's pray. Good chance you may be sitting here, someone may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I don't think I want to come to Christ if it means I may have to suffer. I'm not a believer, and my life's full of enough struggle as it is. I thought there'd be a nice sermon about if if you come to Jesus, all your problems are solved. No, but if you come to Christ, you have somebody to walk with you through those. And It may be this morning that God is saying to you, to your blind eyes, be opened, see. See your need for a Savior. See your own sin and see the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I invite you to Christ this morning. And maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, boy, I've been fighting God on this. I've been, I've been angry at God because something's happening in my life that I need to praise Him for and say, Lord, I don't know why you allowed this in. I don't understand it, but I know it's by your permission and I will stand firm by your grace. And I will trust you and you alone in the middle of it. It may be that he's shaping you. It may be he's correcting you. It may be that he just wants to show Somerset, Kentucky, his power and his glory through you. And you know what? I can't answer that for you. You're the only one that can answer it. But I'll tell you this. We serve a great and mighty God. I'll tell you this. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He is powerful. And just like with this man that was born blind, he cared. What does he want to do in your life today? Father, into your hands we commit our troubles. Into your hands we commit our sufferings. Lord, use them. To glorify you in us, that we might glorify you in Somerset, Kentucky, and beyond. We praise you. We thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.